Good morning and welcome to Chalkline. I'm Ann Schwartz. Some of you, it's not morning because you're listening to this later, but I am currently watching the tweets roll in from TMC 16 about where TMC 17 is going to be. And I am recording this, so it is Tuesday morning for me. Uh, This has been a rough couple of weeks, starting with the two new police murders that we had, and then the police being murdered in Dallas and Baton Rouge, and it's been a rough week. I just wanted to touch real quick on the fact that I'm not doing a special Chalkline episode on that, not because I don't think it's important, uh, but because I don't want to co-opt that conversation. It's not my conversation to co-opt, and I don't think that I have new things to add. I This week, I'm talking to Noah uh, Cho, and he is amazing. He is a longtime friend of mine on Twitter, and he tweets a lot about being multiracial and being part Korean. He's going to talk about that and about his English curriculum. So guys, hold your horses. I'm talking to an English teacher this week. I know, it's crazy. He is great. I had to cut some stuff so I could get this into an hour, as I always do. But I want you to know that I there's a couple weird transitions, and they're weird because I had to cut out some stuff. But I also cut out our like deep appreciation of the website The Toast, which I'm really sad about, but whatever. Uh, this week's syllabus, real quick. Um, If you want some good stuff to listen to about the police shootings and all of this, I would listen to NPR's Code Switch had a short episode and a long episode, and NPR Politics had a good episode on it. If you're looking for something a little perkier, you could watch the, um, look up the hashtag CarefreeBlackKids2016 hashtag. It was so great. There are tons of funny vines and beautiful pictures and sort of happiness And there's a Vine I linked to in my blog that made me laugh, and I've watched it about 15 times. Lastly, uh, if you're looking for something to read this week, you should always read Melinda Anderson, who I'm calling Melinda this time. I'm sorry, Melinda. Uh, She wrote an article on the lasting impact of social justice on our students of color, and it's great. Um, So let's get into it. This week I talked to Noah. I hope you enjoy it. Who are you and what pronouns do you prefer? Uh, so I am Noah Cho. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Um, and I don't know if you want this detail, but I, I teach seventh and eighth grade English and am the eighth grade dean at Marin Country Day School in Puerto Madera, California. Uh, I've been there for about six years, heading into my sixth year there. Um, no, seventh year. Wow. I'm heading into my seventh year there next year. And, um, I taught Previously, for six years in a school in Orange County, that, that was my alma mater, um, uh, Fairmont Prep Academy. Okay, so you've taught independent school the whole time? Yeah, I've been independent school the whole time. I did my student teaching at um, a public school, um, and I did a little bit of like summer school work at public schools, but for the most part, I've been at independent schools the whole time. And my next question is usually, what does your classroom look Where are you and what does your classroom look like? But you sort of already answered that. <laughs> Well, I can answer the, the what does my classroom look like yeah. a little bit more. Um, so obviously my school's in, in Marin County, even though I live in Oakland, um, which is a really interesting contrast um, 
you know, for me, um, to, to drive across a bridge and see like how different the world is, uh, in Marin County versus Oakland and Alameda County. Um, my classroom is, uh, because we're in Marin, you know, it is a fairly large, um, white population. Um, but I would say we do have a pretty diverse student body. We're like about 35, 36% students of color. Okay. Um, and the stated goal for our school is to be up to at least 40% in the next few years. So, um, and if you do look at my school's K to eight, okay. so if you do look at the kindergarten through third grade classes, you see that initiative really, um, paying off already. I mean, those classes are far more diverse than the upper school classes are. And we are heading towards that diversity right now. Um, and I have to say that the biggest group of students of color are kids like me who are multiracial at my school. And I think that's one of the main reasons why um, I felt like it was important to stay at the school as long as I have and why I continue to want to work there is that working with a population like that is really important to me. And to, to be an adult, an visible adult that's multiracial in the classroom um, for those kids is really, really important to me. Yeah, you talk a lot about, um, I was going to save this for later because I was going to start with easier questions, but here you go. Uh, (laughs) You talk a lot about being multiracial on Twitter. Like Mm -hmm. that's one of your um, big things. And then when I was internet stalking you, because we've been friends on Twitter for a long time. Yeah. Maybe even years at this point. And I always thought of you as someone who was on Twitter because you don't have a link to your (laughs) blog, right? Right. But I went and now read a whole bunch of stuff you've written about being multiracial and teaching in middle school and all of this. Mm -hmm. I guess that was just an intro. My question is, um, how do you express that to the children? Like, how do you express that you're multiracial? And like, where does that come in? I'm pretty, I'm pretty blunt and open about it. Mm -hmm. I've never hidden my racial identity from from kids. Um, Because our curriculum, and and if you look, look me up on the internet, you will find um, two specific articles that I wrote, one for the Toast, one for the Atlantic, about why having a really diverse literature curriculum is important to me. Um, And in basically the day one where I talk to my, my eighth graders already know because they've already had me for a year. Um, but my seventh graders, when they're new to me in seventh grade, I immediately tell them like, Hey, my curriculum, our curriculum, I shouldn't say my, because I work with a really good team of seventh and eighth grade English teachers. Our curriculum is built around identity, um, about who we are as people and how we fit into broader society. And I say immediately, like, I am cisgender, I am a man, you know, I, um, I am multiracial, and I go into explicit detail about what that means as Korean and um, white. Um, and, you know, I talk about family structure, I'm very open about being raised by a single mom. Um, I think all of those things are really important for a kid to see. Um, vulnerability is really important for me as a teacher, and to be like that open day one has been really helpful. Um, and you know, when we do get in these really deep discussions, I mean, the first, the summer read right now for incoming um, seventh graders is a book called, uh, oh God, I should know this because I assigned it, (laughs) Um, Every Day, um, uh, which is a book about this kind of bodiless, genderless spirit that every day wakes up in a new body. And it could be like, um, you know, a transgender female one day, it could be um, somebody else. Right. And, and that idea of like how you deal with being in a different body, um, than the one that you feel like you actually are, um, is a really interesting book. So identity is like really on the table right away from that summer read. Um, the book is not perfect, you know, and as much as I try to shy away from having straight white authors, 
especially male authors on my curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, I just felt like the underlying message for a summer read book was, was good enough in this case, um, to be, to be something that we kick off with. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting book and it's a really interesting look at, um, identity and it gives me a way to, to be open about my identity right away. It lets me do assignments right off the bat that really touch on identity. And since seventh grade for me is more focused on creative writing than analytical, eighth grade is the more analytical year. Um, although we do do analytical writing also in seventh grade. Um, the creative thing is really important for me. Um, and, and, and having kids address their identity and who they are um, and being able to express that, you know, on, on the page, um, that's all really important. Do you have, because um, I read somewhere that one of your students went to Philip Andover. So do you have kids that are mostly going to these sort of high performing, high achieving prep schools? We, they, the kids go all over. Okay. Um, you know, the one thing that I would say really shocked me about um, the Bay Area independent school world when I moved up here Mm -hmm. was the high school process. Um, You know, I used to teach high school seniors in Southern California. And when I moved out of that, you know, when I came up here and I I I transitioned into working in middle school, I thought, you know, oh, wow, I'm never going to have to worry about like letters of rec and like, you know, dealing with kids stressing about (laughs) applying to high schools. And it was like, maybe even worse because the high school world is far more limited than the college world is. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you think about how many colleges there are, like seniors actually have a huge amount. Of oh choice. yeah. Um, for middle school kids in the Bay area, you know, we feed into like four major schools and then there's some of the lesser known, we're well, not lesser known, but like, you know, they're a little bit further away from where my school is kind of centrally located. So the kids don't go there as much. The public options are pretty good. Uh, up here. Um, so there are a lot of kids who do go to public. Um, so like Redwood and Marin or Lowell in San Francisco. Yeah. Lowell's a pretty well-known public school. And it's like, I would compare it to Stuyvesant in New York city. You know, my cousins went there. Yeah. You do have (laughs) to test to get in and you know, they do tend to take the cream of the crop, but even schools like uh, mission high in San Francisco are, are definitely good. You know, Oakland, Berkeley, they have great schools. Um, so you know, they're, the kids may feel a little bit initially, like, bummed that they're going to public, but a lot of them that go to public realize, oh, wow, these schools are actually just great, <laughs> you know, and they're actually doing really well at them. So we do send them all over. We actually, It's actually very rare for us to send kids to a school like Andover. Okay. Uh, you know, that I, I can only think of maybe two kids in the six years I taught at my current school that, that have gone to Andover. We've sent a few to Taft in New York. Because mm-hmm. uh, I taught it. And Emma Willard, which is upstate New York, but is in that sort of community. Right. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting world. And one of the other things I do outside of teaching at MCDS is um, I help with a conference. I'm a faculty member at a big conference for high school kids called the Student Diversity Leadership Conference. You're on the you're on the board for that, or you're Not on the organizing. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool! I went yeah. to um, POCC once. Oh yeah, so you probably saw the SDLC. I brought program. kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I may have even met some of your kids before that in the past. Um, my school sent kids the one year that I went. What year was it? Uh, the year it was in DC. Oh yeah. I was there. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I was there. I was working there. Um, this is my fifth year heading into faculty there. Um, it's so cool. It's a, it's a really important conference for me. It's important work, you know, and, um, 
that's kind of how I sometimes assuage my my conscience of having worked at independent schools, you know, for so long um, to do that kind of work. Um, but I, you know, I also feel like the kids that I'm teaching at independent schools are the kids that need a lot of these messages the most, right? Um, my mom always talked about them being the kids who were going to because, like, the school I went to is the or taught at is the school Kristen Gillibrand came out of. Mm-hmm. Um, so like senators and we have kids who intern for Hillary. Like these are kids who are going to, who need this, who need good teachers because they're going to make policy change in a lot of ways. Not that public school kids don't. Right. But it's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, And I I think about, you know, my school has a lot of uh, being in the Bay area. Obviously we have a lot of ties to tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and given how, I mean, we've seen in the past couple of <laughs> weeks even, right, like how not diverse tech is, even though those tech companies like to talk about diversity a lot, like Twitter loves to talk about diversity, but their hiring numbers don't reflect that, right? Or, or, or Google Facebook. when they put out their like diversity yeah. thing. And I was like, what you're saying is you have white men, but you made pretty graphs about it. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think things like that, it's important for me to, to hit these kids who are the, the children of these Mm-hmm. You know, these parents that are higher ups in these companies or even just work for these companies to, to get that message, I think, is pretty powerful. And, um, you know, the kids get it. They, they really do for the most part. You know, I've received very little pushback from kids about any kind of diversity work or social justice work that I've implemented either into the curriculum or outside of the classroom. Um, and even really the parents get it. Like, you know, Marin County is is, is a very liberal area, obviously, but um you know, there still can be blind spots no matter how liberal you are. Again, we've seen that, you know, countless times in, in discussions on Twitter and, and Facebook and things like that where y- you are a progressive person, but you still have these enormous blind spots about certain issues like, you know, African-American communities and trans communities and black trans communities, right? Like, there's all blind spots all around those places. Well, and and we have them ourselves. Right, Exactly. <laughs> My my friend Ryan just gave me a hard time because I think maybe five or six years ago before Black Lives Matter was really happening, I said something like, the police have always been really nice to me. (laughs) Because they have. Right. And I didn't understand. Yeah. My wife and I were talking about this because she she grew up in Cupertino um, in the South Bay of San Francisco or the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of her friends from her high school, her really good friends, was black. And, you know, she... At the time, she, we were just talking about this. You know, she was like, you know, I didn't get it when he would tell me like how much he distrusted the cops and and how like why he didn't like them. And her, the only time she ever got pulled over, you know, she I think she was speeding or something, and the cop pulled her over um, and said, "Where are you going?" And she said, "I'm going home to Cupertino." And he was like, "Oh, okay, drive safe." You know, because she's this like little tiny Asian woman, you know, and she looks non-threatening and she lives in a very wealthy area. So the cop was like, oh, no problem. Right. Meanwhile, her friend was being probably harassed left and right more than she probably even knew, um, given that he was a black man in Cupertino. And that probably, you know, really was a different world, even though they were walking in the same space. So that that is was important for her to process, I think, and important for me to hear, too. I hear that. I've had several experiences like that with cops. Yeah, I've gotten some sort of conversation with cops that I know would have gone differently had right. I had not been a nice white lady. <laughs> right. Which is right. how I always describe myself to the children. I'm the nice white lady. I don't get in trouble. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I went to college in Irvine at UC Irvine. Okay. And um, I had like three or four run-ins with the police and I got several tickets. And I think that was more of just 
Irvine itself, you know, so you think of a city like Irvine, which has this great reputation. I think for years it was um, considered the safest city in America. Hmm. Um, but it was because the cops, like, if you were homeless and you wandered into Irvine, the cops would pick you up and bring you over to, like, two cities over, a city called Santa Ana, which had a far higher um, racially diverse population and homeless population. I mean, that, that was, like, things that they did. Um, my friend got pulled over while we were driving because his hat was on backwards. They literally pulled him over and told him to turn his hat back around, like, facing front, right? Like, so that, that you know, you think about, like, that was the whitest city I've, I've lived in, I think, Irvine. At the time, now it's way more diverse. But at the time, it was, you know, still fairly just, you know, suburby white area. Um, and those were things that, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty non-threatening looking dude, right? <laughs> and even then, the cops still pulled us over pretty regularly, you know. Um, just hey. turn, your, turn your hats around. There's an, I remember one cop said that we have an image in Irvine that we have to, you know, that we have to uphold. Um, so... Respectability yeah. politics. Respectability. Oh, totally. You know, and that's that's Orange County, though, right? That that is like the the um, conservative, you know, um, hot hot spot in California, and that's right. where and every. You grew up in Orange County, right? I did grow up in Orange County. Yeah, um, really weird place to grow up in. Um, and every time I go back to visit, I, I'm just like puzzled at how that happened that I that I grew up there, and then how I who, how I turned into who I am because my politics should not be what they are right and my worldview should not be what it is given where i grew up and what i grew up around and what the messages i was getting were um but i always had a sense of like um, a burning desire for justice right and i injustice always really bothered me even though i may not have been able to express it that well at a younger age um you know and as somebody who went to an independent school for for high school too like you know i was I avoided confrontation a lot back then. So I kind of just went along with the flow. And um, even though deep down I was always seething and to have parents who were conservative and, and, you know, my grandparents who I love, but they're very arch conservative. Um, to have to talk to them about this kind of stuff was very interesting. I struggle with the fact that I am an independent school teacher and I, I love my school. You know, mm -hmm. I love working in my school. I love being able to build curriculum any way that I want, you know, and, and not, you know, the only people that I have to answer to are my two partners in the English department. That's oh, and it. the children. And the children, right. <laughs> um, and the children, yeah. And I, we're, we're really good at gauging with them and being very clear with them, like, hey, if you think this book sucks, we'll take it off for next year. We have no hesitation to do that. So if right. a kid says, like, hey, I'm having a really... I'm really not a kid, but many kids say like, Hey, uh, these are the issues we have with this book. You know, we listen to them. And I think that's one of the reasons why the kids at our school respect us because they know that we actually listen to them, which is a novel idea. Um, I don't know if you read my, my, I wrote this from medium, so it wasn't like it was a published piece, but I wrote about why I don't teach to kill a mockingbird anymore. Uh, uh, I think you mentioned it in one of the other pieces, but I didn't read why you didn't. So why don't you teach? To yeah. Kill a mockingbird? So, to Kill a Mockingbird, you know, and I here's what I'll say about Mockingbird. Mockingbird is a very beautifully written novel. Mm -hmm. I think as a model of, of writing, there's a lot for a kid to gain at about, like, how to construct beautiful sentences, or right? How to really nuance certain characters. But the biggest problem that, and this is, an, this is by the way, is an ongoing debate, because two people in my department 
there's three people in the English department. Two of us are very vehemently opposed to Mockingbird now. Okay. The other member of our department still would like us to bring it back. So every year we have this debate, but <laughs> he's still outnumbered two to one, so he never wins. Um, but the problem with Mockingbird is that you know when you have when you teach at a school like mine, where you wind up only having one or two um, African American kids per section, right? Um, in a given year, right? This incoming eighth grade, it has far more African-American kids in it. But for a long time, right, that was our, that was our numbers. And there are no black characters in that story that have any kind of agency of their own, right? So you have Tom Robinson, who, like, doesn't really get to say very much, you know, in the novel. And he's basically just used as a symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other character that has a lot of lines is Calpurnia, right, the housekeeper, um, and even even with her, it's complicated, right? Because right, she's because the, she's the 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 mammy character, yeah, right? Exactly, the, exactly. the magical black woman, exactly. Um, the help, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. kind of what it what it is. And you know, they while the kids do go visit the the black community in their town, um, they still they're still powerless. You know, there's no there's no agency in any of the black characters and the black voices in the novel. And to be honest, like me and my other colleague, we noticed that the black students were like looking around the room whenever we'd read that novel and like, they would lock eyes with us and be like, what the fuck? Right. Like, what is, what is this? You know, like, what is this book? Why is this book considered so great? Like this book is, is not, does not feel good to me. Hmm. Um, and I, to honor those black kids in my class, it was like, you were right. You know, you were right. This book has a lot of flaws. Now, my other colleague is like, well, we should teach it with the flaws. But the ar- other argument is that that's a big book. I, I recently met another English teacher who spends six months on it, which is absurd to me because you are losing so much curriculum time to do that, that I would rather find works that have eye perspectives for people of color than to be about this white savior novel thing, you know, that, that Mockingbird is right. And, um, I'll send you a link to my, to my medium post. So you you put this up on your blog, you can link to it, um, where I articulate far better than I'm doing right now. about (laughs) why I don't want to teach it, you know, but I, you know, when I was at, um, I, you know, NIAS obviously, right. The national association of school. So I went to their, um, diversity leadership, um, Mm -hmm conference that they have in the summer Mm -hmm. um dli is what it's called now diversity leadership institute and i i brought up not teaching mockingbird to that group and all of the black teachers that were there were like yep (laughs) you know like that's that's not a good book and there was a few other teachers that were like do we totally get it and then there were other teachers who were like no it's the great american novel you can't get rid of it you know and it's it's that like that that loyalty to canon that always has bugged me as an english teacher like i have never felt any kind of like, cause when I really took courses in college that really spoke to things that I was interested in and, and my pieces on the Atlantic and the toast talk about this, like when I found a novel, it actually sparked joy in me, right. That mm-hmm. I, in a way I didn't know I could in an English classroom, right. Like, okay, I can analytically think about this work, um, on the same level that people want me to think about Wuthering Heights or, or the Scarlet Letter or something. Mm-hmm. But I can apply this to a book that actually speaks to me on a very core level. Um, I was far more excited to write a 30-page paper, you know, about Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee than um, Samuel Richardson's Pamela, which is like an atrocious book for me I to don't read. I know anything about that. It's terrible. Okay. Never read it. um, <laughs> I won't read it then. Cool. It's, it was like the prototype for, for Pride and Prejudice and that whole mode of, of writing. Okay. 
Um, it was kind of like the first one, but it's it's an awful book, and I don't like it. Um, and it's very regressive. And um, obviously, if I was teaching like a high level college course on literature, of course, I'd want to keep things in. And I I would actually, if I was still teaching high school kids. I might still include Mockingbird, but teach it very critically and be like, you know, here's all the problems of this book. But for an eighth grade kid... But no one's doing that. Yeah, nobody's doing that. And for an eighth grade kid, they're, they're not going to get that nuance as strongly, no matter... And no. I don't want to force feed that to them either. So I want to give them a book like um, like The Absolute True Diary of Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Mm-hmm. It has a very strong eye perspective. It's written by a person of color. It's semi-autobiographical. And have them think about what that book says about being a person of color in America versus To Kill a Mockingbird um, and what that says. Um, and even though I think thematically a lot of things that Mockingbird talks about are still relevant, um, the, the I perspective is not the one that I want to use. You no, know? and so. it's super interesting that you say that because I, I read To Kill a Mockingbird in eighth grade probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read it, um, but eighth I listened grade, to probably. it. That's yeah, the, maybe yeah. ninth. But I read it, I listened to it because I was driving to and from school a long distance before I listened to it two years ago when, when Michael Brown was happening. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to To Kill a Mockingbird in my car and the parallels were insane. Right. Like, but I understand as an adult the like sort of difference between mm-hmm. like loving To Kill a Mockingbird as an adult mm-hmm. and force feeding 38th graders. Kill right. a Mockingbird and and hoping that they'll think it's this great thing because right. I don't remember loving it the way I do now. Yeah, and I, I think the the fear that I have, and when I've you know met with other English teachers about curriculum and stuff like that, you know, and this this goes to the root of the the problem of having like Martin Luther King Jr. Day assemblies at schools um, because you get that tendency to think like, oh, we fixed everything in the civil rights movement, right? So. Mockingbird is a, is a relic of that time, not mm-hmm. applicable to now, and and it does have ap- applicability applicability to now, <laughs> but it's not it's not the perspective that I want, you know. And I, I think ultimately, like you have a white savior character like Atticus, but he doesn't he doesn't save Tom Robinson, you know, because he can't. Obviously, the system was rigged against Tom Robinson. But that book is also very critical of poor people, not just mm-hmm. black people, but I would say it's 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 troubling. Um, not to the same degree as it is in black portrayal, but of the way it portrays poor white people, it's also very savage um, yes. and dehumanizing, right? The UL family does not come off as sympathetic in that novel. Um, to, uh, and mental health. Yeah. Mental health. Really it's not bad. great around. It makes, yeah. it makes, which like is appropriate of the time. Right. But like makes mental health problems look like crazy. Right. And I just don't think you have to, Again, I, I, I will keep harping on this till, till forever. Is like you don't have to be beholden to classics. Like you just, you just don't. You know, um, ask ask any kid that's like gone through a good English program. Like their best learning happened from books they actually cared about. Yeah. And it's really hard to make kids care about a lot of those quote unquote classic books. I mean, every kid usually likes Mockingbird, except for like as I mentioned, <laughs> students who just don't enjoy that book really. Um, but, you know, there's other books that work well, you know, and I, I don't, haven't gotten rid of every classic. Like I teach Macbeth every year to seventh grade. I was going to say my kids, my 10th graders. So my friend Lindsay would have the same opinions as you that classics, she likes teaching classics, but she, they read, we have like this weird history curriculum that's from like the beginning of space to like, <laughs> it's stupid. It's the fucking, I have so many feelings, but they read like 
Jurassic Park and mm-hmm. they read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But the kids' favorite book they read this year was Hamlet. No, Macbeth. They read Macbeth. I can't remember if they read Macbeth or Hamlet. But they loved it because they yeah. read it in class and they read because our kids are are struggle with reading sometimes they read both english and shakespearean language no fear shakespeare they did they read the no fear shakespeare version um but they loved it it was their favorite book of the year like lots of kids were like miss schwartz i loved the shakespeare yeah i know i it's funny how much people love macbeth when they read it um i found that that particular shakespeare play has I've taught at 12th grade, 10th grade, and 7th grade, and I've never, I've had very few kids dislike that one. Um, I think kids just get it, right? Like power mm-hmm. struggles and, and getting it over your head, right? And, and trying to wear clothes that don't fit you, right? Which is a running theme in that, in that play. Um, so I think kids, kids understand that. And I do Romeo and Juliet with my 8th graders, but I, oh. I, I treat it as a comedy instead of a <laughs> Um, and the kids love that, um, because it's so ridiculous. It's so over the top, but it's such a great parallel to, to teenage thinking, you know, like, I just hate um, it so much. Just being a teenager and making really dumb decisions and not, and like, um, having dumb adults around you, like Friar Lawrence, who, who give you bad advice, like that, that to me is actually very funny. So, um, the kids actually wind up liking it because they think it's funny. That, that's caused me problems from their high school teachers. I've gotten emails like, why do the kids think Romeo and Juliet is so funny? And I'm like, it is. <laughs> but, um, it is. I yeah. mean, I just hate it. I, I love Shakespeare. I, I discovered about early, about 12th grade that I could read Shakespeare, mm-hmm. which like for me was like this opening of doors to, I mean, I love theater. I'm a theater kid. Right. But I love Shakespeare and I hate <laughs> Romeo, except for, Except for the I bite my thumb at thee scene, yeah. which might be my favorite scene in all of Shakespeare. Because, <laughs> again, it's so stupid. Yeah. No, the, the whole thing is about dumb teenagers doing dumb things yeah. and having very bad consequences. And I think a 14-year-old kid can, like, totally yeah, it is. read that and be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've done really dumb things like that before, too. And the theme of um, all, all teenage is love is forever. Right. Which, like, when we talk about, like, Twilight and we talk about, like, these books where, like, infinite love, it's either love or yeah, death. Yeah. Teenagers oh, totally. love, like, John Green falls into that all the time. Yeah. Teenagers love love or death. <laughs> Those are the only options. Yeah. I mean, my, my favorite Shakespeare plays are actually Twelfth Night and, and King Lear, so, um, oh, but, you know, Lear. I don't know if that would work well <laughs> with Twelfth. the 7th or 8th grade class. Twelfth Night I like. King Lear is rough <laughs> i love king lear and there's an actually a, when i taught high school i taught a film to lit uh, adaptation class mm-hmm. and um my favorite adaptation of shakespeare on film ever is akira kurosawa's ron um which is this japanese feudal version of king lear and it's really yeah. really awesome gorgeous movie um won academy award for a costume and set design and it's just a beautiful movie um and it does this story really well it combines it with a little bit of Macbeth. there's just like a touch there's like a Lady Macbeth character in it. Um, it's really, really great. If you haven't seen it before, I, I highly recommend it. It's a Tell really me the title great. again. Ron. It, the word ran, but just pronounced Ron. R-A-N. Um, really cool. Um, they color code each child's army, you know? So you have like this <laughs> army of blue battling this army of red. And it's, it's very visually stunning. And um, right. the, the full character is done really well in it. Um, it's, it's really cool. It's a really cool adaptation. And you were like one when this came out. 
Uh, it was like five, I think. <laughs> it came Mine. out in 1985. So I, <laughs> I was like, I was negative one when this came out. <laughs> yeah, so I was little, but um, my dad was really into it. Um, so okay. we had it, we watched it at home, or he took me to the theater, one of those things. I remember watching it when I was very little, um, even though it's, it is incredibly violent, but my dad had no hesitations about showing me really violent movies when I was young. So, so you guys read in, I don't know if it was seventh or eighth grade, but one of your classes, you guys read American born Chinese. That's seventh grade. Yeah. Seventh grade. Do you read other graphic novels? Uh, yeah. So we did Persepolis for years Mm -hmm. with our eighth graders. Um, we only cut it last year because we ran out of time. Okay. Uh, And I think to really get the full effect of Persepolis, you have to go through the entire Iranian revolution and background. And you really have to talk about the, the culpability of the United States and what happened. And um, we just didn't have the time to, to squeeze that in, but we normally do Persepolis. Um, what other graphic novels do we use? Um, I mean, it's not really a full one, but I use Scott McCloud's understanding comics. Yep. I have the kids make their own. Um for free read, I like to give kids a lot of different ones. Um, I gave I give the kids Boxers and Saints, which is also by Gene Yang. That that was his like later book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really interesting two book series. One is on Joan of Arc, and one is on uh, the Boxer Rebellion in China. Okay. Um, and the parallels that exist between those. Um, what else? Who's the uh, the happiest man I've ever met? Gene Yang. Met him? I have not met him. No. He was at Comic Con a couple of times now. I think I've seen him at Comic Con speak, and then I've had him like sign stuff. I have American Born Chinese, and I have um, what's the superhero one that he does? Uh, the green. The I forget. <laughs> he has a. He has a. I don't know. I have. He the, super, he, I mean, he was writing Superman for a while. Um, yeah, but he has um. Mm, he has maybe it wasn't him i don't know i have him signed a whole i have him signed a whole bunch and he's always just so happy to meet teachers in particular yeah and he's he's local to me um oh is he he taught in oakland for years oh my god he's um, so happy I, I think he was writing and drawing american born chinese while he was teaching like computer science um at his high school um the here. shadow hero okay Oh, it might be like the green turtle, I think, um, is the actual character. Yeah, I have the shadow hero. That's the one I have because I have this poster in my classroom. Cool. Yeah, so I like I, I like American More Chinese has just been, I would say, the most successful um, book for my middle school students. I really do believe that. I mean, they, those kids love that book more than any other book. And when I have alum come back and visit me, that's still the one they point to is like, wow, that was a really formative thing for me to read. Um, and I remember my, my division head when I first started working and we added at MCDS and we added, um, American born Chinese, he, he read it, um, cause he was unfamiliar with it. And he came back to our department. And he said, that's probably the most complex novel that you guys actually teach. And it's deceptive because, you know, Gene Yang's art is so cartoony looking, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's not threatening. But the stuff that that book talks about is so intense and so heavy. Um, you know, and as somebody who's multiracial and who's straddled Caucasian and, and Asian oh, worlds, yeah. that book speaks to me very strongly on a personal level, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a part in the book where he changes his hair 
to look more like his the rival for uh, yep. his, his the girl he's interested in's affections. And you know, I went through a phase where I like I dyed my hair blonde and I wore green contacts because I you know I wanted to feel like I was attractive and I didn't feel like I could if I was an Asian man, right? So right. I had to make myself look whiter. And so to have that in there as a book and be able to talk about that and have students see that, you know, and have debates about it. Um, you know, the most telling thing for me is when kids say, oh, he wants to be American. And that's always the best point of debate, right? Because then you have my Asian kids in the class who are like, why isn't he American already? I mean, he is an American, right? Um, right. You want, what are, what are you really trying to say? You know, and it have to coax those kids to say, oh, he wants to be white, right? Which is what it really is. It's, it's not wanting to be American. It's wanting to be white. So, um, you know, and I think one of the interesting things too is the kids see that this character starts off in San Francisco in the very few, first few pages and he moves to the Midwest. Um, so we, t- we do talk about like regionality and how much that factors in, right? Because I think you can grow up in a bubble in the Bay Area and think that the world is fine, you know, and you think everything's okay, you know, and there's no problems and, oh yeah, you know, like racial harmony exists, right? Um, and you can live in that bubble. Or you but- can grow up like I did in a bubble of white people and think the world is fine because isn't everyone as happy as all the white people that live in my bubble? Right. You know, but my kids are all from Marin and San Francisco. And and the fact that I live in Oakland to them is like this very mysterious thing, you know. And I remember talking to some kids a few years ago and asking if they had ever even been to Oakland. And a lot of them hadn't. That's so know, And Oakland is like 20 on no no traffic day. It's like 20 to 30 minutes away from from. Well, I would say like 30 to 40, actually, from where my school is. Um, So it's not far. Right. But it's it might as well be a different planet to them. Um, And it. I love Oakland. I love living in Oakland as much as it's changing right now. And as much as it's shifting, I still really love living here because diversity is so much stronger here than anywhere else in the Bay area. And I need to be around that. You know, I can't be in Marin bubbles or, you know, North San Francisco bubbles. I just, I just couldn't do it. So, um, I grew up about, um, 30 miles. Well, it's not even, it's like 15 miles West of where I am now. So I grew up in coastal San Diego. Okay. Like very white, and like a little bit brown, mm-hmm. like some Hispanic, but very, very white. Um, and when I came back to San Diego, I tried living in downtown and I didn't love it. And now I live where I teach, which is in Escondido, which is like 60% Hispanic and 40% white. And when I go back to my parents' house, which is all the time, but like I stayed there for a weekend and I was like, this is weird. Yeah. It's well, weird was- that every single person in every single store is white. Yeah, I get very uncomfortable in those situations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like like I said, when I go back to visit my mom in Orange County, if, I, if I'm in a predominantly white space, that's a very awkward feeling for me. Um, same with being in, like, so I'm Korean. So if I'm in a predominantly Korean space, right, um, not like a restaurant. I don't mean like that. I mean, like, if I'm socially around a big group of Koreans, um, I feel awkward there, too. Um, because I don't, I don't speak the language fluently, you know, I don't look like a typical Korean. So that, that makes me feel really funny. Um, I'm most comfortable around like a very diverse group of people, right. Um, 
where, you know, there are a couple Asians or there's a few black people, there's a few Latino people, there's a few white people. Like that's what, you know, like that being on the SDLC faculty mm-hmm. is like the, the perfect world for me. Right. Because that's the group of people that I feel the most comfortable around. So, um, I want to send kids there so bad, but yeah. it's such an, you don't take public school kids there though. Yeah. No, it's yeah. such an independent school. Now I think you could, I could get away with it, but it fills up so fast. It does. Like, I think like I think I could maybe get away with it if like it was open for a week and I called and I was like I want to send some kids to this and they'd probably say yes. I, don't I think, think we have cool. we have taken, you know, very randomly some public school kids in the past or um charter school kids, but um you know, it's those are exceptions to the to the rule. And right. you know, I, I do get what the conference is for, right? The conference is right. for kids who are at these independent schools who feel disaffected by the community that they're in. Right. And this is a way for them to feel like they're not alone in the independent school world, right? That there right. are other kids going through the same struggles that they are um, as independent school students. So um, it's really important to, for that to be visible um, for our yeah. students. And I think it's important. I think that it's important for the adult piece of that too. Right. Like, I went that one year because I had scholarship money from my school and I like pushed really hard and it was me and our one black faculty member from my Mm -hmm. school, which is always great um, to have one black faculty member, (laughs) but it was not, it was not for me. Mm -hmm. Like it was not a conference that I would go back to every single year right? because it's not my space. So one of my, so our English team actually presented at a POCC. Well, I didn't, I wasn't with them because I was with the kids, but, um, my two other colleagues. So my English department is a white guy, a Korean guy and me who's half white, half Korean, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> and all dudes. All dudes. Very rare. For interesting English in English. Yeah. Very, very rare for an English department. Um, but they presented about our curriculum at POCC and my white colleague, Ted was like, I don't know if I want to come back here. Like, I feel like I'm intruding, you know, like this mm-hmm. is, this is not, you know, and he looked around and he saw how many white faculty are coming to POCC now. And he's like, I, dude, I don't know. This, this doesn't feel right. You know, so he tends to go to white privilege now, the white privilege conference. Mm-hmm. The one in um, Philly this year. Okay. Uh, but it's run by Book- Brooklyn Friends. Yes. Or no. One of the. So Eddie Moore uh, is yes. the guy who runs it. He used to work for Brooklyn Friends. He doesn't work for them anymore. He was never like through them officially. It was just through him um, and his foundation. But yeah, so so WPC is run by Eddie Moore, who um, used to work for Brooklyn Friends. I think he only was only there for a few years. Conference has been around a lot longer. So, um, but that's you know that one I feel like is more suited towards you know white teachers who want to get involved but may feel you know reluctant to um, to go to something like POCC, which is meant to be more of a a safe space. You know, right? For- it was not so much that I felt uncomfortable there, except for like if you ever want to feel uncomfortable about being white. Wait till they separate everyone by race, and then you're in a room full of white people. Oh, affinity groups, right? Yeah. The affinity group of white people, like, had me thinking about myself a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think um, the kids experience that, too, because we do do affinity groups for kids. And I'm always in the multiracial one, and that's, like, the most joyous room of people I'm around all year. Oh, God, it's just just such a wonderful room. That's my favorite part of the conference. But the white kids who have to go to the white affinity group, I mean, that's a struggle. It really is a struggle to, to own what it is that's going on. Um, you know, every year in the multiracial affinity group, I have a few like white kids that sneak in and like, well, all my friends are like people. Oh my God. I feel like I belong here. And, 
you know, when we do affinity group, we say you go with what you feel like you identify as, you know, and I, there's, there's white kids who just really struggle with being around a big group of white people. Um, you know, and like, I, I get it to a degree, right? Like mm-hmm. you feel like you're, you're woke and you, you belong there and you don't belong with the, the white kids who are, who are still working through it. But these are spaces that are still not for you. Right. And you can't, you can't be in them. So, so you're um, not that's always interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an interesting struggle every it's year. It's hard. It's hard. But you know, I, I am seeing a lot of progress with younger kids and as much as people like to always put down the younger generations, I, I think you're going to see a huge change within the next 10 to 15 years as these kids who are, have more access to social media and are getting more involved with these movements. Um, really start to sit down and actually think about it and process it. I think you are going to see a shift. I hope that's my optimistic, optimistic side, um, thinking that that might happen, but we'll see. And my hope is that our generation will figure some of this shit out too. Right. Right. I have have high hopes for, for people who are between, I don't know, 25 and 45. Like I have high hopes for us. I hope that we can, we can get to, I don't know, something. Yeah. I think, I do see improvement. Yes. I see more awareness. Yes, I would say so. Um, but again, I'm, I live in a, a pocket of liberalism that maybe blinds me. <laughs> and the- I also try to ignore people who are being assholes. So, right. like, that creates its own pocket, right? Right. Um, okay. So, at the end of this podcast, which I don't think you've listened to before, so you don't know, so it's like a surprise, uh, <laughs> is this part that I call standardized tests. Do you ever listen to um, another round? I don't. Oh, my God. You have to listen to another round. Um, But uh, they do like a rapid fire question. So they're just like really quick. All right. Um, Do you have catchphrases? Yes. What are they? Um, uh, Main one is good times. Uh, (laughs) I use it very sarcastically. Um, And the other one I do with students is like, um, I'm going to give you three guesses and the first two don't count. (laughs) I use it them a lot. Uh, what was your favorite subject as a kid? English. Because uh, I didn't ask this. It's not on the list. What was your favorite book as a kid? Uh, favorite book as a kid? Probably the Lord of the Rings series. All right. Um, and the Madeline Langle series, the Wrinkle in Time. Yes. I was really into those. Um, Nerd friends. Yeah. Um, I think those are the main ones. The Phantom Tollbooth. I love the Phantom Tollbooth when I was little. I just read that as an adult. A friend yeah. gave me a copy of it. It's good. And, uh, oh, when I was a very little kid, I loved Roald Dahl. Um, I love Roald Dahl. So the witches, um, so scary. James and the Giant Peach, um, the twits. The twits. For whatever reason, I really loved reading the twits. Uh, I think it was the glass eye and the beer that always like made me laugh. Um, I was a Matilda kid. Yeah. Oh, and I also really loved scary stories to tell in the dark. That was a really cool series. Um, 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 and kind of see my, my habits forming. Yep. <laughs> in back uh, then. What is a new thing you have learned recently? Ooh, a new thing I have learned recently. Um, you know, I'm such a I'm such a junkie for for news and for experiences that I, I I'm constantly learning new things. But um, really good article in the Daily Beast recently by um, uh, Jake Adelstein, who's this reporter who lives in Japan, talking about how 
most of the members of the Japanese government are, belong to this very small cult um, who wants to bring Japan back to its pre-World War II glory, and all of them won their par- parliamentary seats on Sunday. So that's a new thing I learned recently that scares me. So Super um, weird. So, um, <laughs> use my catchphrase. Clarify. <laughs> uh, what is a song or album that you've listened to over and over recently? Over and over recently, um, I mean, is it? It's probably cliche for me to say Lemonade, but that that is true. Um, do you listen I, to Lemonade every time you get angry again? Because that's what I do. <laughs> sometimes I do that. Um, I I really like. I've always really liked Portishead a lot. Um, since I was like in high school, they're a very depressing group, <laughs> um, and they're really good like mood music for me. Um, uh, I really like Kendrick's The Pimple Butterfly. Um, Foxes. I don't know if you know the singer Foxes. She came out with an album not long ago. That's pretty good. Um, oh, and uh, there's a there's a singer named LP. Okay. Uh, and she has a, she has a really great uh, EP um, that you can find on Spotify. There's a great song called Muddy Waters, which is um, the song that finished the new season of Orange is the New Black. Um, and that that's a really great song. Um all right. If you've seen the show, yeah. A uh, person you think everyone should follow on Twitter? Um, besides uh, at Soph Germain, um, <laughs> I would say I would say Nikki Nicole Chung. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I think her at is at, at Nicole Sujung, um, S O O J U N G. Um, she is definitely worth uh, a follow, uh, and I say that both as her friend and as a a colleague of hers. Um, and oh, Celeste Ng, um, who wrote Everything I Never Told You, which is my favorite book of the last five years by far. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to read it this summer then. Yeah, uh, she she's phenomenal, and her Twitter is pretty amazing. Um, All right. Uh, TV show you have watched start to finish, or most times? Uh, I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> um, so. I, I am all cut up on Game of Thrones. Uh, I've watched all of Orange is the New Black. Um, the Wire, I loved. Um, Breaking Bad. I followed Lost all the way to the end. You and me both, brother. It was I, not a good choice. <laughs> not a good choice. You know, but what always drew me to Lost was they had one of the best diverse casts on television. Um, you know? My mother would say diverse, but like every single person was the most attractive person that you'd ever seen. Sure. But it was still like, it was still, you know, I grew up reading X-Men comics. Yeah. I think the reason I love the X-Men was because they were the most diverse group in all of comics. And Lost felt to me like the X-Men of TV, you know, where it was like definitely this diverse cast of people. The Koreans were actually Korean and they actually spoke Korean, you know, like that to me was a revelation. So it was, uh, I mean, it was amazing for the yeah. first like three or four seasons where I, was I, I still think I would still put that first season of lost as like one of the greatest individual seasons of television ever, even though it went off the rails after that, that very first season, if you go back and watch that, that is a pretty flawless first season of television. Um, there's a few hokey episodes there because it's, you know, that's the problem with having like 23 episode seasons is that you, you tend to draw stuff out a little bit more. That's why I like the Netflix and HBO series that are only like 10 to 13 episodes per season. Yeah. Um, or even like the way British, the British um, do their, mm-hmm. their TV seasons. Um, oh, Top of the Lake, if you haven't seen that from BBC. With, um, with Zoe Bartlett. Yes. Who's not Lewis. Zoe Bartlett, but will always be Zoe Bartlett. <laughs> Top of the Lake is a is a fantastic show. Mm-hmm. 
I really, really enjoyed that one. And the first season of Broadchurch, too, um, is, is a really great BBC show. I remember reading um, an article back when Grey's Anatomy first started about diverse casts on television mm-hmm. and just right. being like the casual way with which Grey's Anatomy does that. And like, right. I still watch Grey's Anatomy 12 seasons in when people are like, that's still on TV. And I'm like, yep, I still watch it because I'm attached for some reason to these characters. But that was one of the shows that was like, we're just going to put people in roles. Well, and you know, those, those two shows, Lost and Grey's Anatomy, have ABC in common, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and as Shonda Rhimes has just basically taken over all <laughs> of ABC's programming, you know, that, that's become very clear that ABC, out of all the networks, seems to value... Um, diverse programming the most right yeah, even though i have sure. huge problems with fresh off the boat fresh off the boat still exists and it is exists on abc right um so um there was a you listen to the code switch podcast right oh, yeah um there was that i think it was a third or fourth episode where kat and gene denby talked about the representation sweats right about mm-hmm. shows like fresh off the boat um or the cosby show in the 80s right where like you want it to succeed and you're going to root for it even if you have problems with it and i, I think that's very telling um for me about like how I feel about fresh off the boat. So it's a really good episode of code switch. And especially because of the idea of the guy writing the article about what was the show that was the first one, the first Asian American sitcom, oh, American uh, Girl. Yang writing about all American girls. Yeah. And then show. his kid being the lead on fresh off the boat, right. which is just right. like the weird world colliding piece for me. Right. And I, 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 you know, as a Korean American, I should have loved All American Girl, and I had the same problems with it that a lot of the other people did. And um, you know, I don't totally blame Margaret Cho for that. It was the point of time that she that she put that show out, and what the environment in the world was like for for Asian media was not where it is now. You know, um, to me, it's been very curious to watch the the popularity of K-pop really explode. Um, and about like, you know, if you if you're on Twitter, a lot of people love Korean pop stars, mm. like. And I, my timeline is constantly littered with people just tweeting pictures of Korean pop stars. Um, and so to me, that's really odd, <laughs> you know, and like Korean like, soap operas. Yes. And Korean soap operas. My wife loves Korean, my Korean dramas. Students like, like I, yeah, are obsessed, like obsessed, which yeah, is amazing not, because I, they actually have to watch them because they have to read the subtitles. Right. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of, of Korean dramas. I do love Korean cinema, though, and Korean cinema was like this secretly awesome cinema for a long time. It had a big kind of blow up in the early 2000s where a lot of people were watching Korean movies that were coming out, but it's been on the, on the decline again. But, um, you know, Korean media is awesome, and, and Korea itself is an awesome place to visit. But um, to me, it's just weird as a Korean that, like, nobody knew what a Korean was for a long time, even, really, or, like, their only association was the Korean War and that, like, a lot of their clothes were maybe made there. Um, I like your so to see tweet. Korea have this like Korea now is like what Japan was in like my childhood, where Japan was like this cool country with all the coolest stuff, all the coolest things, and now Korea has kind of taken that um, from Japan as like the cool East Asian country, right? Like the Samsung is like the most powerful conglomerate in Asia now, and that's a Korean company. So um, that shift has been really interesting for me. I liked your tweet the other day about someone asking you if you are from North or South Korea. It happens all the time. How? How does all, that happen? All the time. You know, I, I was I was at a place with my friend Dominique, and this guy came and sat with us. He's like, oh, how's it going? We were, and we got on the topic of identity. And I talked about being Korean. He's like, oh, are you North or South? And 
that happens to me like once a month, I would say. What? Um, like where when I meet somebody new and sometimes it's a joke. It's just a really dumb joke and not original. And sometimes people just are really that ignorant, you know, that like if I was from North Korea, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd be living in Oakland. Like I just, you know, most people who flee North Korea wind up in China or wind up in South Korea. Right. And if they do come to the States, they're generally in LA or like New York. They're not, they're not in the Bay area or, um, they don't look like me. So that's, yep. that's, that's that. All right. Uh, uh, weirdest place that you've run into a kid to a student. Oh, um, I like this question. So I've been teaching for like 12 years now. Um, so I would say the weirdest place I run into a former student would be at a nightclub in Las Vegas. Um, I was there with friends for a bachelor party and this, my former kid walked in. He's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, I'm an adult. Like, what are you doing here? Um, that's That was a weird one. Um, oh, I ran into um, a former student in the bathroom at the Atlanta airport. Oh, once, hey. Yeah. And that was odd, too. Um, he was touring colleges with his family, and I was um, coming back from a conference. And I was like, hey. <laughs> it's okay. Um, that is weird. I, I also ran into a former student in Italy. I was checking into a hotel and, and he was walking by and saw me and he ran inside and, and said, what's up? So, um, odd, but yeah. Super weird. Um, what is something you are really good at? Um, eating. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. really good at, um, I, you know what? I would say I am very good at teaching. Um, I don't have a lot of self-confidence about much of my life, but I do feel like I'm a good teacher. Um, and I, I feel like I'm good at that. Okay, um, so say it again, but say it without, I feel like, at the beginning of it. <laughs> I am a good teacher. There you go. Uh, when I do this with the students and I make them go around in a circle and say something they're good at, every time someone goes, I feel like, or I think, we all go, no! Yes. Try again. So that, that is one thing. Um, and... I feel like I'm a pretty good cook. Okay. I am a pretty good cook. There you go. Right? <laughs> um, it's important. Yeah. You're an English teacher. Language is important. Yes. Um, what would you be if you weren't a teacher? I, ooh, um, I don't even know what I would be. Like, teaching is so essentially a part of me. Um, and I wanted to be a teacher for, for a very long time. Um, but I would say given my fascination with food and cooking and, and that kind of thing, I, I might've gone into into culinary arts. Um, that definitely, and my, like, that's been my whole like life story has been revolved around cooking and eating. So, um, and I love writing about food even. So I think, yeah, being like maybe a food critic or actually being like a, a sous chef or something that might've been definitely a, a direction I might've gone in. All right. Uh, you haven't listened before, but the other people have asked questions. So here you go. Rob France wants to know, would you survive the zombie apocalypse? Um, no. <laughs> Highly <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, would Sadie wants to know if you had to get a tattoo or do you have tattoos? I do have a tattoo. Um, and I want, I would like to get more. Um, I got, I was a late comer to tattoos. Okay. Uh, I, I, um, always wanted one and 
never felt like I found the right thing or the right thing that I wanted to have happen. But, um, after I started getting really deep into diversity work, um, in my early thirties, uh, cause I always did, but I never dipped as heavily as I did once I joined the SLC faculty. And once I started really revamping curriculum around it, um, I realized that like, I really wanted to reclaim my Korean identity in a lot, in a really strong way. Um, so I got a tiger, which is like, one of the symbols of Korea, one of the national symbols of Korea. And then my dad, who I mentioned earlier, passed away when I was 13. I had his name written in Hangul, which is the Korean um, writing system. Um, I had that written next to the tiger. So that's on my chest. Very cool. Um, if you could change one thing about your school, what would you change? Um, you know, I would add more students of color. <laughs> you know, there it is. More families of color. Um, like I said, we're already working towards it, and I feel like we've made good strides, but I would like to keep striding. And I would say more diverse students, period. So I, I don't want to be so exclusive on students of color because I would love for, you know, more trans students and trans students of color to join our school. And I would love for there to be um, differently, more differently abled students at my school. You know, I think the more diverse a community you have on every level, right, um, religious diversity, socioeconomic right. diversity, age, ability, family structure, all those things, that, that's really important to me. So to increase that, those numbers is important. All right. Um, if, ugh, I hate this question, but I'm asking it anyway. Lonnie wants to know, if you had three months to live, what would you make sure to do? Um, I'm a big traveling person, okay. so I think I would do the very cliche, like I'm going to go travel and see every main thing that I haven't seen yet in my life that I really want to see. Um, number one being Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Um, that's, I've been to Southeast Asia, but I've never been to Cambodia and I really, um, I really want to see that. Um, and I think I would just eat a lot and just try <laughs> to eat as much of like, things that I really want to eat as I could. Because <laughs> you'll get three months. Who cares? Uh, Moses wants to know, what do you like about kids? Um, it's my favorite. That's such a great question. Right? Um, kind of, kind of everything, you know, I, I love how messy they are, you know, both literally messy. Mm -hmm. My room looks like a disaster every day at the end of class. And I have to keep them a few minutes to make them clean it up. Um, to how like messy they are in dealing with the world around them and, you know, struggling their way through, through an essay or, or fighting their way through a class discussion. Um, I love learning from my kids. Um, cause I learn a lot about the world through them. Um, the cool thing is like being a teacher is I, I, I still am aware of pop culture at a very primal level that uh -huh. my friends aren't. So like when something happens and people mention something and they don't, my friends don't know what it is. I'm like, Oh, I know what that is. <laughs> like, cause I hang out with 13 year olds all the time 13 and 14 year olds, like most of my day. So, um, but just everything, like I, I love being a teacher. I love being around students. I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. And I, I think everything about them from how ridiculous to how awesome they can be is, is what I love. Me too. Um, I like that they're giant blobs of potential. Yes. Uh, this is the last question and this is the question that I ask everyone at the end um, and it's only 11.30 in the morning so you can take this however you want um, <laughs> besides this what is the best thing you did today and it can be this um, week or this month if you need that because it's summer yeah it's summer um, I would say that the best thing that's been going on recently for me is that um, I've gone back into running again 
which I had lost um, sight of for a while. And that's been really helpful for me to dealing with a lot of the stuff that I've been going through and my, with my, my personal life. And, um, you know, I had a rougher than usual school year, not still not that bad, but a little bit rough, yeah. you know, I'm getting back into running has been really good. Um, and just remembering having the summer off and remembering how grateful I am to have what I have, you know, and the life that I have. So I yeah. feel that running exercise is good and teachers sometimes forget that. Yeah. <laughs> Very easy to, <laughs> I always, I'm a little more emotionally stable when I exercise regularly. Same. Same. All right. Well, um, that's it. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. You made it to the end of Chalkline. Thank you for listening this week. Um, I am in need of help finding guests. So if you want to push some people in my direction, uh, specifically with introductions, I would love that. I hope you're enjoying your summer. I think it's time probably that I get up and start my day. So have a good one. Bye. Do-do-do-do-do.